Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you are having an awesome day. I am, and I'm not, and I'm going to tell you why. So I'm in the middle of the conscious cleanse. I'm on day 10. It's a 14-day thing. Seems like a really long time, doesn't it? So I met the founder, Jules, a few months ago and decided to give this a try. And you know, I'm a very curious person. I do a lot of fun with food stuff and um, I already eat pretty darn clean, but the habits that I tend to slip back into are desserts, sweets, Kim and Jake's, I mean, who wouldn't? And even all refined foods like pastas and stuff like that. Anyway, what I discovered about this cleanse is that it's all about meeting you where you're at. I've never done a cleanse before, so I didn't even know what a cleanse really was. I just heard all these crazy stories about bizarre cleanses that you did that would like make you, you know, crap your pants 10 times a day. I'm sorry, but that's really what I thought it was in my mind and that you were like blowing out your system. And this is a much more common and gradual type cleanse um, where they we eliminate all common allergens and foods that might irritate your body, which include this whole category of things called nightshades that includes tomatoes and eggplant and red peppers. So that was really interesting to me. Um, so as you can imagine, one of those things that might irritate your body is caffeine. So yes, I am not kidding. I am 10 days with no caffeine. I seriously am pausing so you can gasp. Okay. So I wake up every day resentful of the cleanse. (laughs) I'm like, how does my head feel? I'm mad at the cleanse because my husband's making his coffee or he's on cup number two and I'm sitting there drinking my lemon water and trying to journal and do things that arrange my head for the day. But If I hold off on that initial urge, which I have for 10 days, 10 days, um, it dissipates. And, you know, to be honest, I don't actually forget that I didn't get my coffee. Uh, I don't, you know, it's not like that's what's happening here. But I really thought I was alone in this craziness until I went to a dinner last night with a bunch of other cleansers at this awesome restaurant in Boulder called Zeal. And I asked everybody around me what the one thing they miss most is, and there were literally two answers, coffee and alcohol. So I'm totally not alone. We all resent the cleanse in the morning, but then we get on with our day. So I'll give more on this in next week's show because I'll have finished the cleanse and then I'll be introducing you know, those foods, which I had taken out and it'll be really cool to see how that rolls through. All right. So let's go on to our guest today. I'm really excited to introduce you to this phenomenal guy named Chris Waddell. He is such a cool person on so many levels. He's a speaker, an author, an athlete. He has 13 Paralympic medals. I'm not kidding. 
Uh, he's a philanthropist. He owns his own um, nonprofit, and he is literally an all-around adventurer of life and more. So after a ski accident left him paralyzed when he was in college, um, he simply moved on with his life and adapted his passions around his new body. But as all elite athletes understand, and any athlete in a sense too, but when you're racing as a job, you can only compete at a certain level for so long. I mean, it's, it's just the nature of age. And at some point, it's time to move on and accept a new phase in life. So he's got some really cool stories about that. I personally could relate to this on so many levels, but even more so for my husband, Tim, who, like Chris, reached best in the world status. And then the whole what next and where did my identity go kind of cycle. But there's so much to take away in this episode that's relatable to all people, regardless of your phase in life and who you are and what kind of athlete you are and what you do. So let's get this one started. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm ready. I am ready. So ready to talk to you today. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thanks, Nicole. Glad to be here. I'm so excited. Um, I got the chance to... I guess, come across you and all the magic you're spreading through this world through a program that we have in common. Um, It was called the Evoso Live event. And we both did something called the Speaker MBA, where we were working with a group of other speakers led by the incredible Aaron Weed, who's helping all of us you know, craft these messages that are sitting inside of us and we don't know how to quite articulate them, right? Exactly. Um, So anyway, I I went and I watched you speak a couple weeks ago in Boulder at E-Town. And the minute you got up on stage, it was just like electrifying. Everybody was enwrapped and I just knew I had to interview you because I could relate on so many (laughs) levels. Well, thank so, you. Yeah. That's flattering. Well, what's really what's really flattering is this bullet. You you call it a bullet bio. Okay. So you guys, Chris sent me a bio. And it's got oh, a good 10 or 12 bullets. Do you want to hear what some of these bullets are? Okay. You probably don't say these out loud to yourself very often. You received the Dalai Lama's un, unsung hero of compassion. You have 13 Paralympic medals. You're a world champion in both winter and summer sports. You have the most medals of any male monoskier in Paralympic history. You have a doctor of humane letters from Middlebury College. You're the first ambassador of the International Paralympic Committee. You're the founder of One Revolution Foundation, first nearly unassisted paraplegic to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. You're in the Paralympic Hall of Fame, U.S. Ski and Snowboards Hall of Fame, Skiing Magazine's 25 Greatest Skiers in North America, NPR's The Best Graduation Speeches Ever, and probably the very most important is that you made People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People list. Yes, and that last one actually did more for my ability to make a living as an athlete, much more so than any of the medals that I won. Isn't this crazy? Okay, that is a mouthful. How does it feel just hearing that list of accolades? 
you know, it's 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 a funny thing. It's it's stuff that I know is true because I was there. It happened. It, it, it's a funny thing, though. In some ways, my I feel like my CV is not necessarily this bragging kind of thing as much as it is sort of like permission to get in the door, which sometimes the hardest part is getting in the door and, and being able to present to groups and being appealing to people because I've never been, you know, on television all the time. I'm not, you know, a household name. And, and in some ways I, I hope that people look at it and say, wow, this guy hopefully has a lot to offer. So we're going to dig into that because you do have a lot to offer beyond a lot to offer. Um, maybe we should start with how, how you got in the chair, because that was a defining moment in your life. And you may not be here today doing this great work you're doing if this accident hadn't happened. I'm sure, I'm sure that I wouldn't be. That's, that's the really interesting part to me. I was actually with my, my college roommate a couple of, uh, a couple, three weeks ago, something like that. And, and we were talking about how we weren't doing what we thought we were going to be doing when we were in college. And there is no way that I would have thought that I would have been in front of groups on a regular basis and, and really combining school groups with corporate groups. I probably, I'm in front of groups a hundred to 200 times a year. And that would have panicked me in college. I was panic stricken getting in front of groups. So why would I ever want to do it? Uh, But so the accident happened I was, I was a freshman in college. I, I was at Middlebury College. I was ski racing there. It was my first day of Christmas vacation. And you, you know, even though it's vacation, it's the beginning of our season. So you go home and you train with the group that you trained with when you were coming up. And, and so I went back to our home mountain, my brother and I did, and just warming up. So it was essentially kind of like couple of laps around the around the field before soccer practice kind of thing and my ski popped off in the middle of a turn and I fell and it seemed you know it was probably one of those fairly I don't remember anything after my ski popping off but it was probably a fairly innocuous fall you know I fell in the middle of the trail it's not like I hit a tree or anything and but I broke two vertebrae and that damaged the spinal cord so in in some ways it kind of made me unique which is which is something that I never ever would have guessed, but being unique, it gave me a greater platform to a certain extent as well. In that, especially when I was competing, before it had always been about me trying to win, and if I won, then I was happy. But this gave me a platform to make a greater statement about sort of a population that I didn't want to join, but suddenly became a spokesperson in some ways for that population, and and I thought that my uh, you know my performances could speak to some of the some of the, it could stretch people's imagination about what people with disabilities could do so so this is one of those things where if you're joking you'd be like well you almost want to make up a story for how crazy the fall was that caused the accident because you you just had a little malfunction it's like i never i never lost a toenail from all the ironman racing i did i lost a toenail when i banged my foot on the couch yeah, it's like ridiculous. And and that's the way these things go. Yeah, you feel like you need a far bigger story. No. I I'm sure I had much worse falls throughout my throughout my career and throughout my life than I than that fall, but it was perfectly bad is what it came down to and 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 that's what happened. But even you're still 
I mean, that's the thing, like as somebody who's, who rides a bike, you know, sometimes you feel like you're not going all that fast, but if you're going 20 to 30 miles an hour and you have a, have a wreck, suddenly it seems much faster. Yeah, it's true. It's probably going about 20 to 30 miles an hour, which when you're skiing doesn't feel like you're going fast. Well, let's talk about perspective then for a minute, because you mentioned this, uh, this, this population that you didn't want to join, but suddenly you were in it. And before your accident, I mean, did you know anything about is like the disabled world and disabled athlete world? I knew very little, if anything. I remember as a little kid back when, when it was all double chairlifts and slow chairlifts and 45-minute lift lines during Christmas time, seeing this guy who had who had outriggers, probably full like you know steel outriggers. They probably weighed about 40 pounds apiece. And I saw him in the lift line. I never saw him ski. The year before my accident, I saw a woman named Diana Golden ski at a race at Burke Mountain in Vermont. And she kind of blew me away. She was a, an above-the-knee amputee, so she skied with one ski. And I don't know if that time she'd gone back and forth. She at one point had used outriggers, and then she was using poles for a while. So so in some ways, she wasn't all that much different than than the regular skiers. But But she was just... She was the only person that I'd ever really seen, and she was she was transformational. She was at the top of her field, and she was stretching the field and defining the field, and and that to me was was so cool because as a ski racer, I felt like I wasn't defining before my accident. I wasn't defining anything. I was just I was just trying to catch up and keep up and and those kinds of things where where she was stretching what was possible and that to me was really really cool and but I'd never seen anybody skiing a mono ski I'd never seen a mono ski before I got into one. Well, what's an outrigger? An outrigger is like a good question. It is like a little crutch with a ski on the bottom, sort of like those uh, those forearm cuff crutches. Yep. And uh, yeah, Canadian crutches, I think, is is probably, you know, a technical term, maybe, mm-hmm. if I'm getting it right. But that's, yeah, that's what an outrigger is. It's just a, a forearm crutch, which I think is exactly how it happened, that they were looking for, when they first started, they were looking for a little bit of balance and said, okay, well, we'll take a crutch and we'll we'll put a ski on the bottom. And there you go. Oh, my gosh. It's just amazing how technology has is changing so fast, too. And there's so much that it can help with. But I want to go back even to this transition from one world to another, one universe to another, adding, maybe just adding another level to your own universe. So this accident happens and I'm, you know, you kind of make it sound like, yeah, well then I just rolled into this new thing. But I have to imagine there was a period of difficult, you know, adjustment time. There was to a certain extent, but it also, I was so scared of the reality that I saw around me in the hospital and so scared that that could be my life that I was just, I was pushed into action. But what was that reality? What's that? What What was was that that reality? reality? Uh, The reality was, I mean, it was a depressing reality. It seemed like there, there just weren't possibilities for people. Uh, You know, I, I didn't share much in common with a lot of the people who were, who were in, in the hospital. So like I was in college, there weren't a lot of people who who were in college or were, or had a college education. And I kind of thought, wow, this is an entirely different demographic than the demographic that I'm used to. 
And but it also it just seems so limited. Like you had to have people come and get you out of bed and learning so much in the beginning, which obviously you have to learn, but it seemed like like that could be really scary. Like I didn't want to be in a situation where I couldn't get out of bed by myself, where I couldn't dress myself, where I couldn't sort of move and do things. And so it was really it was really scary that 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 sense of dependence might be something that would that would perpetuate and so so action was was a big part of it i had to do whatever i could to get out of the hospital and i went back to school to college to middlebury almost or uh, two months after the accident so i missed wow one class and then went back for the spring semester and and then it was you know for the first couple of weeks at least it was just it was just triage i was just trying to i was trying to do whatever i could it took me took me two hours to get ready for for class in the morning, you know, to get up and get dressed and get showered and all these things. And you think, wow, this is, I like, I'm exhausted by the time. And, and, and I wasn't, you know, I was putting sweatpants on. So it's not like I was like getting dressed up in black tie or something like that. It really should have been pretty easy. So, but, but it was, it was that, that I ended up learning in probably two weeks, those first two weeks, what it would have taken me months if I'd been able to do it in a more relaxed manner. But what was great about it is that I was back with my friends and and realized that I hadn't changed in their eyes. And and if anything, I'd kind of been elevated in their eyes that so many of them thought I could never do what you've done. And that to me, you know, was kind of was kind of flattering. So, yeah, so I kind of ran with that. There's a element of maybe fear that's pushing you. And then you start to get some momentum, so you're just going. But what's really interesting is this kind of like almost stubborn determination to not ask for help. <laughs> and I think we're going to talk about that <laughs> later on too, but I'm hearing it already, like right after. I mean, you didn't go home and hang out for a year and figure all this stuff out. You went right back. I did. I did. And it's it, it's what I needed to do, and I think... It would have been much harder for me had I gone home for a year. I would I would have been so scared about the way that people would have seen me. Well, yeah, you might have gone into depression too because you're just you have no distractions there. You're just faced with it. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was it was kind of it would be 24/7 like this is this is what you do and it's like, "Oh, can I do anything else? Like I'd much rather be distracted here." Well, and I think people listening can relate on a lot of levels to when something happens to change their course and suddenly they're just confronted with a whole new reality. And a lot of people go into that downward spiral. So do you have any thoughts or advice on, you know, for somebody who might be relating at the same level or a different level? Yeah, I think the downward spiral is is relatively easy when you feel completely overwhelmed. The the biggest thing for me is is to find to find a reason. I mean purpose is Purpose at that point for me became really clear. It was that I wanted to continue to be that to be the same person that I had been before, and and that meant going back to school. It meant getting back into sports. It meant getting back to something that I loved, and and for me that purpose became crystal clear. The funny thing is that purpose can get a whole lot cloudier the more comfortable I get. And, and sometimes, sometimes the big things can be easier than the smaller things. And I think that, that if somebody's looking at it, sometimes it's a matter of, 
are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for your children? Can you, you know, what, what, what's going to make you do the most that you can do? And, and in some ways that might be for your children or something like that, where you think, I want them to continue to be proud of me. So I'm going to, I'm going to show them the best that I am. I just, I, I know it's the motivation, what drives you, but you had a lot of maturity because in college, a lot of times we're not thinking about who we are. Who am I? What's important to me? You know, we're just like going from one party to the next and, you know, whatever pursuits. And you had this accident and you said, I want to make sure that I remain who I was. So I'm the same person. And so you're thinking about these big, heavy things. So I would say that's an important topic because especially as we get older and we go through the decades of our lives, we change a little bit and we don't stop to think about who we are and what's important to us. We, we don't. And I think, I, I think you're giving me a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt because, because in some ways being who I was in college was, was that possibilities were open to me. And, and, and I think the the question of who we are does get a little bit more challenging as we get older, because the beauty of being in your late teens and early twenties is that you think you already know everything. So you've got it all figured out. <laughs> I think for me, at least as I've grown older, I've realized more and more that I know less and less. Isn't and, that the truth? I agree. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about what you did then after college, how, how you used your new body, you know, and the new, maybe uh, mental fortitude that you'd, <laughs> you'd been now, uh, I don't know what the right word is, accumulating since the accident and what you did with that. Yeah, well, it's funny. So, so I started skiing three days short of a, of a year of the first anniversary of the accident, which in some ways I was bound by you know, seasons. It had to snow. Uh, so <laughs> True. <laughs> So it could have been it could have been earlier. I did my first road race, if you want to call it that, the previous summer, and I did a 10k in an hour and 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah, that's not fast. No, well, not if it's a lot of downhill in a chair. Definitely not. Yeah, but you this is are up and downhill, and yeah, I was much much closer to the back of the end of the race than I was to the beginning of the race. But you know, but, you were tapping into your athletic self immediately. In other words. You know, from the time in the hospital, I was tapping into my athletic self because having trained the way that I had, I knew what was good pain and what was bad pain. And I knew that the good pain would eventually get better if I was willing to struggle through it. And so that's that's part of being an athlete is knowing there's going to be pain, but I'm going to get somewhere. And, and being willing to do that. So, yeah, I tapped into that right away. And I tapped into skiing. I mean, I knew what it was supposed to feel like. So I couldn't do it, but I knew what it was supposed to feel like. And, and yeah, that, that you, you don't lose that experience that you've gained over, you know, whatever it was, 20 years for me. That's true. So you went on then. You started to make early gains in ski racing now as a... Would you say paraplegic athlete? It was like how? Tell me more about your injury. How did that physically affect you? What parts of your body? Uh, so basically, I, mean, I broke thoracic ten and eleven. Okay, which means that that I pretty much have kind of like just the mo muscles right underneath my sternum. 
Okay. Use a lot of my balance actually kind of comes from my lats just because it's a muscle that goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. And I use them for, for balance in some ways, at least side to side balance. But fore and aft, I really don't have, I don't have much. If I, if I lean over onto my, onto my knees, onto my legs, I can't sit back up. Okay. So you don't have ab muscles to help you. No ab muscles and no corresponding back muscles. Okay. So, um, when you were on stage, so I just noticed that you started out speaking and your legs started doing a little twitch. Yeah. Is that kind of a normal thing that will happen from time to time? Every once in a while it does. Every once in a while the twitch, the spasm, uh, it's, it's kind of a funny little thing. Sometimes it's a matter of a brand new pair of dress shoes mm. that aren't quite as comfortable. So it might be, it might just be my feet telling me, Hey, this, this hurts, which yeah. I'm getting that message in the same way that you get that message. So there, there are a variety of different things. And yeah, sometimes it's just, and it's just a random kind of twitch. I have no control whatsoever of it. And oftentimes it's more annoying than anything else. Um, you did a good job when I watched you, you just grabbed it and you were like, I'm gonna hold on to you. I mean, I think though, the, the reason to even bring that up is just that, you know, your body is doing things or not doing things. It's like a little bit more out of your control. You can only control parts of your body. And so as you're going through and rediscovering who your athletic self is, I mean, I can only imagine that it could be both difficult, but almost like a really cool adventure to see how you could use your body now I don't know is that was it was there some positivity within it it becomes more of an adventure as you get better in the beginning when I first started skiing in a mono ski I felt like I'd been cut in half wow And, and and I'm sort of telling my body what to do and my body's going I have no idea what you're talking about I have no ability to do that. And so so it was really strange. And But eventually you start figuring out that, you know, so it feels like you're cut in half. And then eventually I feel like I'm I'm connected again and, and realize that sometimes what I'm doing with my upper body can affect what happens with my lower body, which really ultimately is how is how I ski, mm-hmm. where it's really more of what I do with my upper body that affects like like moving my inside uh, shoulder up and forward as I'm coming into the turn helps drop my hip into the into the snow because I don't have the ability to to force my hip in that direction. So, what made you become you know the best Paralympic skier in history? Like, what was it about you that put you arm's length ahead of everyone else? I think some of it was experience. The, the funny thing is that, that sometimes looking at our perceived advantages, uh, like for me, looking at it, I thought, well, I, I was a ski racer before, so that means I should know what's going on. And a lot of these other guys don't know what's going on. And the funny thing is that I skied a bu- against a bunch of people who had been ski racers before, who had been better than I was before. So that's not necessarily it, but sometimes it's, it's the perceived part of it of that. I I think I have an advantage and because I have an advantage, I want to exploit that advantage. Big part of it for me was that I felt like I worked harder than other people. And, and I was probably more cerebral about 
how to approach some of these problems. And so I think that those were really my, my two advantages. I don't think the physical advantages, I don't think I had physical advantages necessarily, but I think I had the, the willingness to just kind of grind it out and, and to really kind of look at it thoughtfully and think, okay, how can I transfer what I know to what I'm trying to do. And, and it was a, it was an infant sport. It was, it was a nascent sport at that point. And people were, people thought it was different than skiing. And I thought, well, all I know is skiing. So I'm going to try to do exactly what I tried to do before. And I love that. And you, you were, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to have to post, do you have some videos of you skiing or mostly photos? I have some videos uh, I'm trying to think if I, I mean, we definitely, yeah, I can probably, I can probably get you some videos. We've, we have some that we have shot because a lot of the other stuff I just don't have. I don't know. Oh, I can't wait. We got to post this stuff. Cause you guys are going to die when you see, I mean, just incredible. But what's really cool too, is this journey. So you hit, like you become the best in the world, right? I mean, I know I haven't been that person, but I live with someone who was, and it's fraught with this incredible sense of like power and magic, but there's a flip side to it. Just like anything with every up, there's an equal down. And, um, you know, at some point you stopped racing, right? Yeah. So what happened? When I stopped racing, it was the most difficult thing that I had done just because I lost the identity that I created you know, as being the best in the world at what I did. And and, and I, I wasn't the best in the world when I retired, but I had been the best in the world. And and but you know that never that never leaves you. You've reached that point, but it's not quite as as significant or, or appropriate afterwards. Like, okay, well that's what you did. How are you going to use what you did to do whatever the next thing you're going to do is? And and, and and it's hard sometimes when you think that maybe my best, maybe my greatest achievements were when I was 25 years old. And and hopefully I've got a lot more life left after 25. And how do I take that? And so, yeah, I, I went through more of what I would have assumed I would have gone through after the accident in the hospital after retiring. I mean, the sense of paralysis, the sense of you know, the physical paralysis, okay, that wasn't a big deal. I could figure out how to get around. But the paralysis of like, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what I want to do. I feel like I've been betrayed by my passion and I don't want to be passionate again. I've made a lot of sacrifices in order to be this successful, you know, in terms of career and finances and, and relationships and those kinds of things. And I was willing to make those sacrifices, but I kind of hoped that making those sacrifices that that they'd come back around that there'd be a benefit in it in, in a lot of ways finishing it felt like i had some good stories but there was no there it was there was no there was no opportunity to stop i had to i had to continue to move forward and had to figure out how i was going to move forward hopefully not making the same the same sacrifices that i'd made before well, and it's, you know, when you're racing at that level, you're in the journey. You're eating, you're sleeping, you're training, you're racing. You're not thinking about what's my next big grand thing that I can be the wor- next world champion in, you know? 
And uh, so when you're done, you're just done if something else hasn't already transpired. So there's, I mean, the natural depression, people get a mini version of this just after they complete their A race for the season. You know, they finish a race and then they're kind of like, what now? I don't have a goal on the horizon. This is like a major life change where you'd create an entire identity around this. So it's huge. It really, it really was huge. It really was. And, and it took me, you know, in a lot of ways, I retired in 2004 after the Athens games. And I feel like in some ways I am still trying to, I'm, I'm still trying to catch up. And it's what, 13 years later. Wow. Yeah. It takes a long time. I mean, it's not like it's obvious on a daily basis, but trying to get back to that person and it's not sort of seamless and there's not a, a sort of horizontal, uh, you know, shift to whatever else you're going to do. Like, Oh, okay, well I finished doing that and now I'll just be at at the top of some other field. It's like, well, that's not really going to work. It doesn't really work that way. So go back and start building something else is a challenge. Well, what's really interesting too, is that what you've been doing were, were self, you know, selfish in a sense, self-driven yep. pursuits and who you are now. I see you as someone who is very much helping others in the world and may you, I, you know, really you were helping other people in the world when you were racing too, because you were giving people inspiration in different ways. But, um, so so how did this shift though happen? Was it, was it purposeful? Did you realize one day, you know, I need to, I need to take what I've learned and use it to help other people or did it just happen to you? In a lot of ways, when I was competing, I felt, cause I never got paid to, uh, to compete. I mean, I granted I won a little bit of prize money, but I don't think I ever won more than $6,000 in a year. So it's hard to live off of that. You don't even have to declare taxes at that level. <laughs> you probably don't. I don't know. I don't remember. I think I did, but I'd have to go back and the the the, the money going out was was a whole lot more than the money coming in. So it all balanced out on the tax side of things. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't I don't think I was I wasn't getting ahead as I was competing, but I got paid to make sense of what I did. So I still got paid to compete with my spot or to. Uh, to, to present, to, to speak for my sponsors, both on, both in terms of, of speaking to groups, but also on television and bringing my sponsors into what I did. And that's, that, that was the value that I could bring to them as opposed to specifically just competing, which in a lot of ways I thought was my job was to train and get to be the best in the world and do this and then try to stay the best in the world. But uh, so that was part of it. But part of when I retired was I felt like I wasn't relevant anymore because I wasn't competing anymore. So I didn't have that opportunity to have to have a greater impact on the community as a whole. And I didn't really get that back until until I decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Ooh, let's talk about Mount Kilimanjaro. So how long after your retirement was this? And Tell, tell us a little more about the decision to do this and the journey. So it was about three years after I retired. I think it was, I think it was the fall of 2007 that I decided I wanted to climb Kilimanjaro. And it was, 
it was a random thought that just somehow found its way into my mind. I was riding my off-road hand cycle up and down a mountain bike trail near my house and this thought pretty much just tapped me on the shoulder like hey you should climb Kilimanjaro and I was like it's just me here like who where did this thought come from I have no idea but it was it, it was gaining that voice <laughs> and it was and it was also it was also being able to uh to put it into a context that I think that people can understand the metaphor of climbing a mountain, we're all climbing a mountain, you know, our own metaphorical mountain, and we're all probably Sisyphus, right? We're all, we're all pushing our rock up our, up our mountain. So the idea of man versus mountain, I think, was something that people could understand. And in some ways, the context, better than they could understand sort of Paralympic sport sometimes, because that was one person with a disability uh, trying to beat another person with a disability. And it wasn't in some ways, it, it, to the general public, without being educated, it, it's not quite as pure. Mm. And whereas, sort of trying to trying to trying to battle with a mountain was something that people could understand. And so I thought, okay, let's do this, and and let's see if I can get to the top of this nineteen thousand three hundred and forty foot mountain. And and the other part of it was that when I was competing. We, we weren't really on television. And if you don't tell the story, it didn't happen. Good point. So I felt, you know, of course, this is kind of like being, being the college student again, right? Where I thought, well, all of those people are doing it wrong. I can do it better than they can. And I'm going to climb the mountain and I'm going to tell the story. And this is going to be, you know, the, the seminal, the seminal act that, that creates worldwide change and, and that's part of how you have to approach some of these things, though. I mean, it's like with this sense of of optimism of like, this is the best idea ever, and we're going to make the most phenomenal movie ever, and it's going to win all these awards, and, and it's going to do all these things. And then you, I think that helps power you through the struggle that inevitably you encounter when you go, oh, if I'd known how hard this was, I don't know if I would have tried to do it. Well, that I can relate to in pretty much any great task in life. Definitely. Wow. So what was your, what was your driving message going to be before you did Kilimanjaro? What were you trying to tell people? You know what I was trying to do? I was trying to tell people a lot of what I saw in Diana that year before my accident, where she was stretching my imagination about what she could do about, about the possibilities, but also stretching my imagination about what I could do. And, and I just thought it, it's so easy to look at it on the disabled side of things, to look at the disabled community. And by definition, it means that, that you're not able to do as much. And I wanted to flip that upside down. And, and yeah. like, well, you know, doing things oftentimes is, is about troubleshooting. It's about, it's about finding a solution. And we can all find a solution. And we've all seen athletes so much. I mean, so much of my life is, is, has been athletic. And you see that person who, you know, the guy who's 5'9 and playing in the NBA. And you think, well, you're, you're not supposed to do that. You're not <laughs> supposed to be there. But that's one of the coolest things when you see these guys and you go, oh, wow. So you just are far more creative than the rest of us, which 
is is life in general and thinking okay well i have this problem i have this thing that i want to do how can i how can i solve this problem and and the intention with climbing kilimanjaro was to make to make that journey and to make that struggle as universal as possible that it's not about me as a paraplegic trying to trying to climb it it's about me as somebody who has a big goal and has to figure out how do i create the team how do I create the vehicle? How do I train to be able to solve these problems? And that, to me, is the greatest lesson out there, is that there are a lot of problems out there, and there are going to be a lot of people who surprise you because they've figured out a way to solve the problem that you thought was completely impossible. So when you're out there and you're faced with the reality of actually getting to the top of Kilimanjaro, what happened? Did anything out there happen that changed the way or the message that you thought you were going to go in and represent? Well, I mean, before I got there, the, the, the biggest thing that I was training for in a lot of ways, I was, I was out there for nine to 10 hours a day, just, just pedaling. And, and I was training as hard as I could to be fast enough that I wasn't going to slow everybody down. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so it was kind of like, you know, sometimes the greatest, uh, the greatest motivation is trying not to be last. Right. <laughs> In some ways, that was it. But I thought that the only way, it's really easy to perceive victory as being really narrow. And the only way that I thought as I was starting out that I could be victorious, that I could be successful, was by being the first unassisted paraplegic to make it to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you put that word in there, unassisted. Right. Exactly. Because I had to do it by myself. Because then if, in some ways, if I could do it by myself, it'd stretch people's imagination. Maybe the way that it had with like Roger Bannister back in, you know, back mm-hmm. breaking the four minute mile back in 1954. And, you know, those kinds of things that they thought that's impossible. And I had to create that narrative because in some ways, in some ways, what we do is important, but also the story that we're able to take from it and the story that we're able to give to other people is equally, if not more important. Yeah, it's true. So how did it go? Well, I reached a point that I couldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally reached a mountain on the mountain, mountain, reached a mountain on the mountain, this boulder field at about 18,500 feet. God. I can only imagine I would have been hallucinating at that height anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And hallucinating because I was moving so slowly. I was climbing a fixed rope and it was a, it was a rock climbing rope. So what would happen is I'm pedaling and pedaling and pedaling and I'm effectively just pulling the slack out of this rope. And then it would finally catch and I'd surge forward and then I'd roll backwards half of what I just surged for. Oh. God. And I'm back to pedaling and not moving. And, and so mentally, it's just absolutely ruining me just trying to think, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not making any ground. And, and it's really hard. <laughs> and so, yes, the hallucination part, it, it really was the hallucination practically. And it's, it's 8,500 feet, a lot less oxygen. The day before had been ridiculously hard, and I didn't really recover from it. And so I was starting, starting in that hole and then, and then the mental part of it was ruining me. And then I reached these 
reach these boulders and the guy who's the chair of my board the day before he was climbing with us and the day before as I was finishing he said look there's a part you can't do I was like okay I did not know about this he's like yeah I've looked all over you know Nate and I who is our doctor he's like we've looked all over I I don't see how you're gonna do and then he finished obviously with which I'm sure you're gonna do it I just don't know how oh my gosh so so were you in your head? Did you go through the blame game? Like, they didn't tell me. I thought I could, da, 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 or, or were you accepting this? So, no. I, what I ended up doing, so I'm thinking about this, and I thought, okay, well, what I need to do, maybe I can't do it the way that I thought I was going to do it, but maybe there's another way. So oftentimes, like when I've, sometimes when, I, when I've gotten onto a plane, like some of those small planes, mm-hmm. I've been there, and, and, I, and, you know, the pilot's there and I say, okay, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get out of my chair. I'm going to get on my hands and knees. You're going to grab my ankles and we're going to do a wheelbarrow and I'm going <laughs> to walk up on my hands. And, uh, and, and, and I've done this numerous times and it's, and it's not that hard. I've done it, you know, going up flights of stairs and things like that. And, and, and it's, it's a workout, but I thought, okay, maybe I can't do it exactly completely by myself, but I want to be part of the struggle. So as I'm sleeping that night, I'm thinking, this is what I'll do. And I'll do it with Dave. Dave was my guide. And he's this like crazy fit guy who, you know, just for fun goes and runs like three hours a day in the mountains in, in Crested Butte. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's just who he is. He's found this sort of loose, loose limbed gait that, you know, for like running downhill. And, and he just, he, he's a a phenomenal guy and just phenomenal in terms of his endurance and everything. I thought, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get out. And we're going to do a wheelbarrow. And I never, never really got to that point. I mean, for some reason, I don't know why they, they kind of started talking, okay, well, this is the plan. And I didn't, I didn't speak up. And I don't, in, in some ways, I don't know. It, it's almost like the moment passed me before I realized, before I even realized the moment. Wow. That's a big, that's a big message. Yeah. And then I'm thinking in hindsight, in hindsight, we can see those moments, but when you're in it, it's really hard to grasp at what's happening. It is. And especially like at altitude and being so physically, (laughs) you know, physically exhausted, physically, mentally and emotionally, it's kind of like being, you know, it's kind of like having too much to drink. I think in some ways, you know, it's like, wow, that happened. And I had no idea it happened. Uh, You know, and then, so then I got upset as I was going up higher you know as they were carrying me i thought now i just missed this moment like who was watching out for me nobody was watching out for me and and then i had to make sense of it and and that's where i ended up having this conversation with dave because he was he was the guy at the top he he had been to the top he'd he'd scouted the, the mountain four or five times every time we went there he would run up to the top of the mountain and and sort of run up with some of the African guides who they're like, well, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. And it sounded like he was carrying their backpacks so that they could keep up with him so that he could, he could see the whole mountain and scout it out for me. And, and I had to take him aside and, and tell him that he disappointed me. That mm. He was supposed to be the one looking out for me. And, and I didn't hear about these boulders and I didn't, uh, I didn't know. And, and we, it, it felt like we'd bet, everything on me getting to the top 
And suddenly I didn't get to the top and I thought, oh man, I've just, I've failed so many people by not taking charge of this moment. And what was the reality? The reality. So when I told him, and I, and I told him, you know, that he disappointed me, he said, you know what? Nobody climbs a mountain alone. Everybody wow. does it as part of a team. And, and in a lot of ways I had to look back on that because that had been part of my fear in the hospital that if people had to do things for me, that they'd get sick of doing things for me and that I'd eventually be alone, that I'd be this burden to them. And so I always felt like I had to say, I can do it myself. And in realizing this, it was kind of like when, after watching me struggle for five days, the porters and my team, they just, they just wanted to get into it. They're like, yes, let us help you. We want to help you. We want to struggle too. No matter how hard it is, we want to do it because we've just watched you struggle for five days and we want to be a part of it. And that, that struggle for me ultimately, ultimately one, you know, sort of achieved the, the impossible, but it freed me of this burden to be this superhero. And I felt like I had to be a, either I was a superhero or I was nothing. And, and that was part of the problem when I retired was that I felt like I was no longer the superhero. I was just some average person. And, and it happened to be, you know, an average person in a wheelchair. So then it looked like, well, if you're an average person, then you're an average person in a wheelchair. You're really just in a wheelchair. And I was like, uh, all right, okay. And, and obviously this is mostly the internal monologue, but I felt like I felt this burden to be the superhero. And especially like when I was talking, that's what I felt like the groups wanted when I was speaking to a group, like, give us the superhero. We need the superhero. Tell us that we can achieve anything that no matter what's in front of us, we can get there, we can do it. And the greatest gift that the mountain gave to me was the hundred feet that they carried me because it freed me of this, this sense of being this responsibility to be a superhero. And it, it, allowed me to be more honest and and allowed me to be vulnerable where I felt like before I really wasn't allowed to be honest. So many of my friends said, oh, you know, like you you inspire me so much. And I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. But it sort of means that then I can't have a bad day. Right. That's a great point. I've got to be there for you. Yeah. You know, I think what's cool is that realness is trending. <laughs> I think like you have just nailed this, that there's been an expectation and this goes all the way down to the everyday person who is not a world champion, but is in their world, a world champion, like say mom and expected to do the un like unrealistic, right? Which they always is, know where the keys are. They always know where somebody's shoes are. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything has to be done. And then if you miss one little thing, you feel like you failed and the meltdowns and the disappointment with yourself. And, you know, it's this ability to ask for, ask for help and to let your pride go and let your ego go and change that frame of disappointment to something different. You know, I think that's, those are incredible messages. Like this was such, this is such a powerful thing that you did for you because now you can go out and share this with the masses and the people listening are hearing it loud and clear. So I'm so, so happy that you did this in your life to help all of us. 
Well, that's, I, I seem to, uh, I seem to pick the, the harder way to do things. I think that's the way I learned things. So beat myself up. So I'm happy to help other people. Don't, don't do what I did. <laughs> I know. Isn't that great? You know, we are, we have come well beyond our 5k. The, the podcast is based on the average 5k time. And uh, it's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, by the way. We've been almost 49 minutes. And wow. we didn't even touch on your nonprofit, One Revolution, and the programs that you run, name tags and some other things. And the fact that you're doing Boston this year, aren't you? I am. I am doing Boston, yes. Yes. And hopefully running a little bit faster 5Ks than that since since we yeah. have a bit of an advantage in a wheelchair. <laughs> I hope so too, but you know, hey, just the fact that anybody gets out there and finishes a marathon, no matter what state they're in, is just, it's amazing, really. I look back on my life as a Ironman athlete, and I, I don't know how I did it, <laughs> truly. Isn't that fun? That's the power of perspective and maturity. Um, we we have other... You did it, but you know that you did it. You do. You're right. And we have other Ironmans to conquer and other, you know, mountains to climb. So one... Um, Maybe before we wrap, I'm going to do one final question here. But before that, maybe you can just give a quick brief on One Revolution, your nonprofit. So One Revolution, the mission of One Revolution is to turn perception of disability upside down. There are a lot of programs out there who open that open people's, people's minds to the possibilities. And a lot of what we're trying to do is prepare society for those people who have a new lease on life. Part of what we do is with name tags, our educational program, it looks at the labels, name tags are the labels and sometimes the limitations that we put on ourselves and others. And what we're trying to do is get people beyond those limitations. Our, our motto is it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. So it's about the resilient sense of something goes wrong and in that there is an opportunity because somebody's going to be successful out of it. And, and it's also about developing your unique voice and having the, having the courage to figure out what's my genius? What, what, what do I have to offer? You are doing some amazing, huge things in the world. You know what we'll do is, because we don't have a ton more time to get into this, I'm going to link to One Revolution and Name Tags, which is a program you talked about on the, uh, on the show notes page and also a way that they can contact you. So we'll make sure that people can learn more, which will be awesome. Yes. So, all right. I asked this final question of every guest on the show. The podcast is called run this world, as you know. Um, so as we close it off here, if you could give our listeners one final nugget, one little piece of advice that will help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? We have the ability to determine how we're going to react to whatever happens to us. And that often determines our success. Wow. That's freaking strong. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Listen up, people. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're amazing. Thanks, thanks Nicole. This is, this is wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Awesome. All right. We'll be in touch. <laughs> Chris is so awesome. So I'm sure you already stopped to check out the show notes probably immediately after I mentioned his inclusion in People's 50 Most Beautiful. I mean, seriously, you had to. 
Um, what I love most about Chris is how real he is. He has accomplished more than just about anyone I know, and he lives in a world of new frontiers in so many ways in, in regards to being a disabled athlete and a disabled adventurer and how wide open that world is, is just insane. And then what he's doing with these messages and his name tags program and all of that, you guys have to check this out. I love also how one of his toughest quests was actually a failure on paper, or at least from his original intent. It was his Kilimanjaro attempt and he accomplished it, but he needed a little help, remember? And that that failure helped him grow the most. And I know you can relate to this. That whole concept of what doesn't kill us makes it makes us stronger, you know. That actually is very true in so many ways. Chris has been tested time and again and constantly comes out not only stronger, but more in tune with himself. So imagine if you looked at every negatively perceived experience and instead of feeling sorry for yourself, you embrace it. And you ask yourself, how did I grow? And how did I become better? I think I can try harder on to do that as well. So let's let's make a little you know note to ourselves to work on that. So I'm gonna leave you today by repeating Chris's final nugget. We have the ability to, to determine how we're going to react to whatever happens to us. And that often determines our success. I love it perfect way to end it and on that note you know what time it is it's time to get out there and run this world have a great workout and i'll see you next week